When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How has coaching evolved in the modern era? Why do coaches struggle with better teaching concepts? Do these new techniques actually work and why? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome on the show Ben Guest, who is a teacher and a university lecturer with a PhD in educational leadership. But really why I wanted to bring him on the show is because he's written a book uh, called Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, which touches upon his experiences as a former high school coach in Mississippi and also a professional coach overseas. So, Ben, thanks for coming on the show. Nick, so happy to be on. Big fan, longtime listener, as they say. So, uh, <laughs> first time honored to be on. Nice. Yep. Well, um, you know, you had emailed me the book and you had asked me to, to, to maybe even write a blurb, which I would still need to do, by the way. I hope maybe you can shove it on Amazon if it's possible to update it at some point because I have, I have thoughts. I have, I have blurbs to, to give you because it really, you know, it's, here's the thing. Sometimes you come across a book, particularly with sports writing, that really does a great job putting you in the scenes. Not everybody is good at that. Not everyone can capture that. But uh, every so often you come across some writing, and so I wanted to really commend you, maybe even ask you for some insight on what, what your process was in, in, in allowing us to like get into the scene so perfectly and so well and be able to picture it uh, as vividly as we do when we're reading it. Sure, 100%. Number one, thank you for the compliment. That's a great compliment. And two, before I address that, just with the idea of a blurb and updating. So I self-published this book on Amazon, and it's available in ebook, paperback, and hardcover. So for anybody out there that's interested in writing and publishing, it's incredibly easy to do on Amazon. And of course, one of the things you can do is constantly update um, any aspect of the book. So yes, as soon as I get Coach Nick's blurb, the next day it'll be uh, officially in the manuscript. And then Amazon, every edition that's printed after that will, oh, will wow. automatically reflect that. Um, so yes, so I, I was an English teacher, high school English teacher uh, for several years. and. Everything you're saying is just a great compliment because great writing, descriptive writing should put you in the scene. And so often when people tell stories about something that already happened, they speak in generalities. So the key is really what are the sounds? What are the smells? What are the visuals? What's the feeling? And all of that hopefully then connects an emotion from the, re- from the writer to the reader. I and mean, that's really what, what writing and, and most of art is, I think. It's the, the one person trying to transmit an emotional experience to another person. Um, so using those specifics of image and sound and smell and touch and feeling hopefully transmits that emotion. Well, let, let's get into some of the meat and bones or, or meat and potatoes of the book because I think what the, it's really about is the transformation of a coach 
from what we had been taught and learned and how to coach for, you know, 100 years up until recently and then now. Although, arguably, you know, if we, we have to use – the title is referencing, you know, sort of a Phil Jackson approach to, to, to coaching. And he'll obviously looms large in this, in this discussion. Um, you know, he had been doing these things since the 80s, way back in the CBA. Um, and I think only now, you know, 30, 40 years on, is it kind of catching on to some sort of a mainstream approach. Certainly, I've been trying to advocate that. So when I see somebody else make that realization and able to describe it, it gets me really excited because I think it's time to, to have these conversations and maybe thaw some of these coaches out who have been so dogmatic in their approach to what they believe is how you know communication should go. So let just describe for us in the beginning, like what, where you came from, what your background was, uh, and what what was modeled for you as a coach, and what you thought needed to be the way coaching would happen on the basketball court. Right. I was. Can we curse on here, coach, or no? I was a shitty coach in my twenties. I was a really great assistant coach, which. Being an assistant coach is, is about relating to the guys one through 12. And, you know, you, you, as the head coach, there's always tension with playing time and starting and all of that. As an assistant coach, you're just there to support. But when I became a head coach, I really sort of took, unfortunately, that model of someone like a Bob Knight, the little general, right, where you're in charge and the, the players doing what you tell them is the most important thing, which is – not the right way to coach, in my opinion. And it's amazing that in, since the 80s, Coach Jackson, Coach Phil Jackson had been successful at, at every single level where he coached, every single league where he coached, winning championships in the, in, I think it was like the Puerto Rican League and winning championships in, um, what was the, the precursor to the G League? Uh, the CBA, winning, winning, yeah, winning championships in Albany with the CBA. And it was really Jerry Krause, um, advocating for Coach Jackson that I think absent that, I don't think uh, Phil Jackson really had a path into the NBA as a coach. And of course, was is the most successful NBA coach of all time. But we haven't celebrated and we don't celebrate enough that model. It's changing now, thankfully, but he was doing this in the 80s. And so I kind of patterned myself after someone like a Bob Knight, where it was, I call it the obedience model of coaching where the players being obedient, doing what you say is most important. And that's just a fucked up way to coach. And it's a fucked up way to establish relationships. And, you know, the great irony, and this is what the book is about. When I stopped focusing on wins and losses, uh, when I stopped just burning with that competitive, whatever it takes to win, and I started focusing on relationships, I won more than I ever had. So, you know, this all rings true to me as well because I had, a, you know, a similar epiphany and I was lucky that I grew up in Chicago and had Phil Jackson to sort of model what we were looking for to some degree, although we never really had, you know, a lot of glimpses into the practices and how that was, you know, how it went, you know, um, on a day-to-day basis and how that ends up working. But uh, there's two different kind of approaches here because I don't know if Phil actually mastered, honestly, the communication part on the court uh, as maybe as well as he would have liked to evolve. I think what we're talking about preparation and like the mindfulness that Phil Jackson uh, practiced. I think that he was unparalleled and way ahead of his game from a, you know, we're talking about um, practicing meditation uh, during the games and yoga and those things. Um, so, but then there's also the actual communication uh, aspect of this, which is what I get yelled at a lot now when I try to espouse um, a, a player focused 
you know, uh, version of coaching, um, people will call you soft. They think that's just soft and they have to be positive all the time. And that's all that is. So what was your take on, on, how, on that evolution? And was that difficult for you to let go of, I suppose, your ego uh, and your need to control things, which is what most coaches, I think, have? Uh, and and what, how difficult was that to make a, that, that switch? And was it overnight? Which was it like a snap of the fingers or was it harder and take, took longer? Right. Great, great couple of questions. So what really helped me is, uh, so I've been an assistant coach public high school in Mississippi in the Mississippi Delta, Simmons High School in Hollandale. We won a state championship my first year there. And the legendary coach there who retired as the all-time winningest boys and girls coach in, in Mississippi high school history, a guy named George Willis, was very much that traditional model of coaching, right? Curse the guys out. Uh, now, he was incredibly funny, and he would sort of lace his criticisms and even his cursing in these incredible witticisms. So... What I took from that, unfortunately, was you have to be tough. You have to curse the guys out. And I sort of missed the softer side of Mr. Willis, which was the the relationships he'd built over years and years. And so I was a head coach for one year in Mississippi high school, public school. And we finished 10 and 13, not terrible. But the season was a failure. Uh, and I, I was that little general coach. And then I took a long break from coaching. I, I got hired by the University of Mississippi to run a teacher training program. And then I went overseas to Namibia and was teaching at a high school there and then a university there. And it was only in my late 30s that I went back to coaching. And then I used everything I had learned about education, about how people learn, how they perform at their best when I got my PhD. And just my life changes. I've gotten into meditation. Phil Jackson was an inspiration for that and had become a much calmer, more centered person. And I'd read the research about how meditation was supercharging learning in all different arenas. And so when I started coaching, then I implemented those things. And it was still a process through that first year. Even though we went undefeated, it was a high school team I was coaching in Namibia. We went undefeated in the regular season, made it to the championship game, city championship, and then lost a heartbreaker. And then what really the book is about is we took the guys on that team and started our own professional team in the professional league in Namibia. And that's really when it was team-led huddles. Um, I'm going to sit down and not say anything during the game um, in meditation before every practice before every game in the playoffs we actually meditated in a key game we meditated in front of everybody in front of all the people in the stands right before the start of the fourth quarter and people were like you are crazy and and same thing as what you're saying the sort of alpha dog of the um the alpha of the league is a guy named allen sort of like the LeBron James of Namibian basketball, just a great all-around player, but very much that sort of aggressive, you know, I'm going to sort of poke at you mindset. And he would walk in and see us and he'd say, hey, deep breath in, deep breath out. And it didn't bother me at all because I loved being known as the coach who meditated because I know how powerful it is. Um, Now, the thing is, to your question, Nick, doing this in the States just without having built up any cachet with parents, with the community, with administrators – it looks so different that I don't know if I could have been successful if I'd come into a new community, say, as a high school coach, hadn't built up any of the relationships and just said, okay, I'm not going to say anything during the games. I'm not going to stand up during the games. Um, I may not call timeout uh, during the game. We're going to let the the guys or the players run the huddle. It's very tough because there's so much pressure from the outside forces, especially parents, 
who grew up were likely coached a certain way, think you should coach a certain way, and don't understand why this way is so much better. So I had, um, you know, stirred the pot a little bit a couple of years ago after seeing uh, Tom Izzo uh, lose his shit on uh, Aaron Henry in a huddle in the middle of an NCAA tournament game. And, um, you know, I got a lot of people who, you know, obviously the people who liked the tweet, you know, were supporting me, I imagine. But then there's a lot of hate as well. And I kind of feel like... Um, that that's sort of the poster child of what we're talking about, the Bobby Knight style, the the the, the kind of um, what what I like to come at it now is when I talk about talk to coaches is you kind of you need to have a goal with every interaction that you have, and if you have a goal, it's almost like that meditative mind where you're not going to just lose your shit like you see him do all the time in these games. Now, what I would always say is that he's an expert in rebuilding the relationship after he destroys it with these tirades every single time. But it's kind of like abuse in, in, in some respects. And it's not often easy to try and explain that to people who then are yelling at you in that same manner that the coach is yelling at the player and using the same tactics unironically to like try and criticize you and tell you how bad of a person you are, um, but I, I love that idea that like because you yourself meditate, that stuff doesn't bother you anyway, and and then in turn doesn't bother the players. By the way, I huge respect. I had always envisioned doing meditation and breathing and huddles, and I just never had the guts to do it when I was you know the assistant or whatever. I always thought because I would see some of my players hyperventilating. In the huddles, right? Literally hyperventilating, and and their, their their foot is tapping, you know, really the heels tapping up and down as fast as they can, and they're just it's insane. And the fact that they could even perform at all, it was amazing in that state. So um, anyway, so so I, I really do feel like uh, that that is above and beyond. Like we, don't, I don't think you've heard anybody in America right now doing meditation. Uh, during games, right? Had you heard about that at all? No. It, I mean, one, let's give a shout out to LeBron James. So he had his first season in Miami. Of course, he kind of had a whatever, quote unquote, meltdown in the finals. And then the, the next year, so now there's all this pressure. Is LeBron with this super team going to win? And in the finals, there were some shots of him in timeouts on the bench meditating. So he really, in addition to Coach Jackson, LeBron James really did a lot to normalize using meditation as a tool for athletes. But you're 100% right. Um, I don't I don't read about or see coaches, especially in the NBA, doing that. And when you were talking about um, sort of, or we were talking team-led huddles, to my memory, there are three coaches, there are three instances of team-led huddles in the past 10, 20 years. Greg Popovich did it, Steve Kerr did it, and Phil Jackson did it. Mm -hmm. And th those are all championship-winning coaches. So you have to build up so much credibility before media, fans, at, you know, team governors and personnel are going to accept something like this, even though the most successful coaches and teams have shown the effectiveness. And so to your point about Tom Izzo, to, to parents out there listening or to anybody out there listening, let's say you have a child in a son in univer at the Michigan State University and calls you up playing for Tom Izzo and calls you up and says, coach called me a motherfucker and, you know, told me to run sprints and do push-ups and I had to get up early and run hills. Yep. Tough it out. That's what it's about. Now your same child calls you and says, I was in my econ class and I was five minutes late and the professor called me an MF for this and an MF for that and told me to do 20 push-ups before I take my seat. That same parent would be on the phone to the administration of Michigan State saying, what is your professor doing? We don't accept that type of interaction 
in any other domain in life except probably the military and sports. Um, and there's probably some research that needs to be done there, right? Well, no way. The military has gone away from this because of that research. Yeah. So not even the military yeah. anymore does it that way. See? You see? And so let, let's dive into this. I know this is important to you, which is how do we perform at our best? And again, for everybody listening, if you think about a high stakes time in your life, whether it's sports or life or job or whatever, where you really performed well, I bet it was you felt the combination of two things. You felt prepared for whatever it was, you had the skill set to deal with it, and you felt relaxed. And the combination of preparation and relaxation, that's what gets you into flow state. That's what gets you into being able to handle a high stake situation at your best. And the model that we're talking about, the traditional model is very much preparation, but it's also high stress. I'm gonna stress you all the time, and you're not gonna have that relaxed feeling in key moments. Well, and it goes back to that goal, right? So whenever I talk to coaches, I ask them, well, what is, what is a coach's goal during a game? And it's unfortunate that they, it's too big of a question to, because there's a lot of answers to that. But what, usually what I want to hear is that the goal of the coach during a game is to get the players to play as well as they possibly can. Now, if you can accept that premise, and most coaches would be like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. Well, then, if you combine that with what you just said about flow state and how we understand that if you're in a positive frame of mind, you can unlock the most uh, production you can out of a player, then, then you would – and also, if you understand what the research says about how athletes respond in the face of anger and disgust, then you would never, ever detonate on a player in the middle of the game. Now, if you feel like you need to be vociferous in a practice where there isn't you know, uh, the game on the line, okay, it's a little bit different, um, but – I think that the, the, the pushback I get, because a lot of times you'll hear, I need that kind of coaching to play as well as I can. It breaks my heart, and I, I would see it over and over again. And by the way, the, the, the most vociferous people on Twitter during that, in, that time were uh, women and girls volleyball players. They would mm, come in there, they would slide into my mentions talk, calling me terrible words and saying soft and this and that, whatever. My take on that really quickly is that I think that there might be uh, uh, more commonly men uh, coaches for girls volleyball, right. and they right. want to sort of go overboard because they want to maybe make these girls tougher than they would normally be, and then the girls absorb that. But it breaks my heart to hear players say that because all it tells me is that they've never had a coach who practices what, what I call emotional intelligence. And if they had had that coach, they would realize in a second, kind of like when we run the triangle offense when I coach, like once you play in an offense like that, like you, you kind of never want to play in anything else. And that, that you know, the Lakers proved that by getting rid of Tom Janovich and bringing Phil Jackson back, primarily because they, they recognized how great the triangle was. So anyway, that's that to me, that that's heartbreaking when you, you have to deal with people who have been like basically abused as athletes don't even know it and, and seem to want it to get, to be able to play well. It's it's so ridiculous. Right, right. 100% agree. I'd, I'd lived and taught in the Mississippi Delta where corporal punishment is still legal and is still used. And it's the thing of people who grow up in an abusive system generally don't see anything wrong with that abuse. And so they perpetuate it. I mean, it, it's a horrible thing that happens with trauma and abuse and so hey I try you know I got whoopings or I got paddled by the principal I got whoopings at home or I got paddled by the principal at school or both and I turned out okay 
and I, I whoop my kids and I expect the principal to paddle my, my kids at school. Rather than understanding everything that we've just talked about and, and what helps people be their best, and if we go back to performance in sports, into your key question, I think it's the most important question, like what is your job as a coach, right? My job as a coach outside the game, outside the competition, is to build positive relationships and hopefully my players help me be a better person and I help my players be better people. My job during the game is to lower the stress. There's already so much stress around competition and then especially once we get in the playoffs and you know in, in Namibia the playoff games were televised, the stands are packed, da 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 da, but whatever level, you always have people invested and so that already creates a stressful atmosphere. And then you know we have to win, it's win or lose. So my job, and I think the right perception of a coach should, their job is to lower the stress and allow the atmosphere for people to perform at their best. Doesn't mean you're gonna win every game, of course, but you're gonna give yourself a better chance to win the game. Now, and it's so true, and also you have to accept the fact that the perspective that you have as a coach on the bench is kind of a lousy one. It's not easy to see exactly what's happening on the court. And so the Izzo example was he was really mad that uh, Aaron Henry screwed up a defensive assignment. And I went back and watched every second of that uh, of the, ha- the second half unfold up until the point where he explodes, and he didn't do anything. What he might have seen or what it perceived was was his own thing, but it wasn't really what happened. And so when you see Aaron mm-hmm. Henry come back to the huddle completely, completely mystified and then completely off his game for the next 10 minutes because of what Izzo did – it's like that's another thing that you need to recognize that you have to let go uh, a lot more than than you think that you know that a lot of coaches are willing to do. Uh, I had a four part series on YouTube. I don't know if you saw it, like probably a year ago, with Alan Keane and Mark Bennett, who have developed exactly this kind of system that you're talking about, and it's actually a whole thing that they're trying to mentor more people. The one thing that they said that I thought would never go over very well in in, in the states because they're based in, in England would be every practice they have the players. Uh, rate the coach and tell him how he did in that practice. And I'm trying to picture most coaches in America, and because and the reason why I say that is because I would never have wanted that. I would have been like, oh my god, I'm not going to let them tell me how I did. I did great, you know. But they that is such an important part of their method, and it's so empowering to the players that um, you know we we talk about that trust. Uh, the, you know, the coach needs to have in the player to do what he wants him to do. Well, guess what? That trust is really the, the opposite. The player needs to trust the coach, right? 100%. Is, is your goal to lead the team or is your goal to create the atmosphere and the environment where the team and the players lead themselves? And if you're a coach, listen to this right now and you're thinking, you know what? My goal is to lead the team. What is the impulse behind that? Is it because it's going to give you the greatest chance for success or is it about you? Is it about your ego, right? I want to be seen as the person in charge. I want to be seen by all the fans and parents and whoever in the in the stands. Hey, that guy's the leader. But I think and, and we agree and, and these I didn't see the series from the coaches in England, but 100 percent agree with that, that the goal is to create the environment and the parameters where in the ideal situation, if you didn't show up for the game, the team would still perform as it is. They don't need you. You're creating the environment for them to perform at their best. Uh, as a teacher, every semester, I gave uh, an anonymous Google form that all the students had to complete in class. Because 
I crave that feedback. And as coaches, we see the importance of feedback, of giving feedback. And, and and to your point about practice, I just want to be clear. It wasn't like I was sitting around letting, you know, just letting what happened in practice happen. My practices were scripted to the minute. And the more I took my, my hands off the wheel in games, the more practices were incredibly structured and constant feedback and constant, you know, uh, if we talk about learning and how people learn, everybody's always doing something, which is something positive I took away from Bob Knight when I attended his clinic, coaching clinic at Texas Tech, that there was never any moment where every player wasn't doing something. And, you know, if we just think about a layup line, right, 90% of a layup line is just standing and waiting. So you always want to maximize everybody always doing something. But, uh, the goal as a coach should be to build positive relationships and reduce stress. And if it's something else other than that, I think there's ego involved. I've never seen a coach. No, 90% of the time when a coach loses their shit, like Izzo did, it's not performance. It's just because they're losing their shit. Um, and, and they'll always say, no, that's just, that was calculated. I did that on purpose. 90% of the time, they're just losing. They're angry about something they can't control their emotions. Oh, they had to hold him back from perhaps punching the kid. He had a bald fist. He lunges at him. I mean, this was not anything in control, and that happens a lot. Uh, and then, of course, whenever they win a game, from that point on, these Michigan State fans will flood my timeline and my mentions with, see, see, whatever it works. Now, listen, he he's produced more NBA players in almost any other program in the time he's been at Michigan State. He's a great recruiter. He gets great athletes. He's got good X's and O's. That's why he wins. It has nothing to do with the fact that he's an asshole and screaming and yelling at these guys all the time. It's it's actually the fundamentals that he does sneak in there in between. Um, I think that a lot of coaches also talk about buy-in and they lament every year how they don't get buy-in and they get enough buy-in. And I just want to Give them a hug and tell them, like, you're always going to complain about this unless you realize that you need to move halfway in the player's direction. Um, and so, and what I mentioned earlier about trust is like, so, you know, obviously you get playing time because you trust this guy is going to do what you want him to do. But then the, the player needs to trust that you have his best interest at heart as well. And there's no better way to do that than like certainly in practices, actually working on the individual skills that will get a player better. And I think that that's another big uh, you know, revolution in the last, you know, 20 years. I know when I was structuring my practices, and I think you mentioned this in the book as well, we didn't do a lot of individual stuff. We can't waste time. That's your time. You have to do it on your own. We need to get into our five-man offense, defense, press, you know, press break, out-of-bounds plays. Um, turns out, I mean, now what I do is I would spend half of my practice on all the individual skills because none of that fancy-fancy offense works real well if the players can't actually score or dribble or shoot, you know. Um, and I think that that's, you made that realization as well, and you talk about it in the book, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And since this is a, a coaching specific, basketball specific podcast, let, let me throw one thing out there. So, for one drill out there. So, one drill that I started using, I kind of combined a couple different things. It's all the players are lined up um, two by two, facing each other, about ten, fifteen feet apart. It's a passing drill, right? So you're going to have the ball, you're going to pass fake, and then pass. And then once you pass, you're going to close out on the person you just passed to. You're going to force them left, and they're going to dribble. And then once they pick their dribble up, you're going to yell, dead, 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 and, and play aggressive defense. So now you're working, and, and while you're pass faking before you pass, the other player V-cuts. So now you're working V-cutting, pass faking, passing, closing out, forcing left, um, dribbling for the other player, 
and then defense, defensive stance and dead, dead, dead in communication. And so being able to combine, that's, that's the superpower for coaches out there. Combine multiple different, have, use your creative side to come up with drills that combine several different parts of fundamental basketball, offense and defense. And then, so we have a row, let's say if we have 20 players, 10 guys all doing this at the same time. And I'm just walking around, you know, checking form, giving feedback, et cetera. But everybody's doing something and both players are working on a specific skill, on multiple specific skills. That Because at the end of the day, you got two hours. After two hours, everybody's brain is mush. They're not going to learn anything new. So the mark of a great coach is how efficient are you in those two hours? If I'm more efficient than someone else, my team is likely going to be better. Now, uh, the other complaint besides buy-in is oh, I never have enough time in my practices. And then you realize that they're spending 25 minutes of their practice running suicides. Exactly. And this is the other thing we talk about because you know Brian McCormick. Shout out to him, uh, the best friend of the breakdown. Uh, has a couple books, uh, Fake Fundamentals, Volume One and Volume Two. I mean, I, I was even talking to somebody, uh, someone recently who I respect as a coach. Thinks I'm pretty sure he's really pretty cutting edge on a lot of things. Was like enamored with a three man weave, and mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you know, there is. Why would you want to train your players to throw like 40 foot passes across the middle of the court and then kind of follow that pass all the way around? I mean. They used to run a weave in the half court in a much smaller area, and that would be something, but not as a full court drill. But, of course, he must have learned it, and the person before him learned it, and that's what he thinks needs to be done. And so, obviously, the other take on that is, okay, if you really want them to be in shape, well, then design a drill where they are not only running quickly, and maybe there's a time limit to it, but then they're also dribbling, perhaps, and catching, doing all those things. But that actually simulates what happens in a real game. Uh, we'll get into like small-sided games in a minute. I suspect that's what we're going toward in, in part whole method. But um, it really is amazing to me how like maybe maybe it's uncreative is the word for coaches. I love to just invent drills on the spot yes. sometimes. Just invent a drill, have it be creative, and then figure out a way to solve a problem that you, that specific team has. Does it feel to you like there's a reluctance to do that? Yeah. Well, it goes back to how people were coached. But let's let's dive. I'm curious now. Let's dive into that, um, Nick. So. Creating drills, if, if we come up with a, a framework for doing that, hopefully it should work more than one skill set. Um, and it's the kind of drill where everybody on the team can be doing it at once. You know, that, that's one thing I'd love to see coaches get away from is there's so much standing around in practice. Whereas ideally, going back to efficient use of time, you always want everybody hopefully doing something. So, you know, I think for coaches out there, using your creative brain, coming up with effective drills. I think two things to think about initially are what's a drill that's going to combine multiple different uh, fundamentals for both players in the drill or how many players in the drill. And can it be something that everybody can be doing? So it's two people, three people, four people, whatever it is, but just space out around the court and we're going to work on these several different things. Now the, the advanced level, right, is the more fundamentals you can you can jam in that drill, or especially small-sided games. That's really where I was going my last year as a coach. Um, then the more reps guys are going to have, and to your point, you want it in game-like situations. When, when in a game is someone going to do a three-man weave or do a suicide? Right. Well, especially because, and it usually shuts them up pretty quickly when I say, 
There's nothing about running in a straight line back and forth at a predetermined <laughs> distance and a predetermined time that re- that resembles basketball at all. You know, there, there, you might as well, you know, go and, you know, go running on the beach and like play volleyball. You know, there's nothing that connects that. Um, I, I would love to figure out, maybe that's a, a 30 for 30, the, the history, uh, uh, the origin of the, of the suicide. Uh, because right. I feel like I've seen footage of people doing that that running drill, you know, in the forties. So somebody came up with that. Hey, we'll touch every line or whatever. But like, you know, who's your style? Uh, it's just it's, it, you, you end up realizing that it, we're talking about efficiency. I mean, listen, you want to go into one of my pet peeves: diving on the floor for a loose ball. Now yeah, the the injury risk. Well, that. But here's the other thing: um, the worst place you can possibly be in on the floor, the worst position you can be in on the, in the basketball court is on the ground with the ball you can't do anything it's going to be a travel it's a jump ball they smother you they steal it from you whatever maybe you get the uh, pass every once in a while but also in, 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 in a number of instances scooping the ball up and getting a layup is a possibility versus the, the a zero possibility of doing that if you just dive on the ball you're never going to get that so why wouldn't you increase the possibility of you scoring getting an easy bucket and the again it's unimaginative on the parts of people who scream at me for this because they think oh it gets my team you know really jacked up and they're really you know uh, inspired by that but i would think it'd be a lot more inspiring to see a guy who had been trained to run sort of doubled over like a third baseman going after a, a slow roller we, no one's trained this that's why no one's faster on running like that and but that would get my bench up if we had trained that and he just even better the guy gets there first as a diver and gets in he's on his back with the ball and my guy just gallops right through and rips it out of his hands and then goes and gets the layup. That is inspiring. Not getting to the worst position you could be in the basketball court. But, like, again, it, it's, it's, it's a really difficult to get that through and have people release whatever that is they think is perhaps toxic, toxic masculinity and this notion of fake hustle that we see sometimes. Uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff. I mean, do you have any things like that that are out of the box that you've encountered that, um, that kind of fly in the face of everybody? Sure. So uh, kind of the overarching theme, maybe this conversation is, is questioning assumptions, right? And, and that's part of getting feedback is you once you start getting honest feedback, you have to start questioning some of your assumptions. So why is it that we celebrate that, like diving on the floor for the loose ball, which generally I liked when my guys did because it's hustle, right? And just thinking out loud, that's why I like it because it's demonstrating hustle. But a more effective play would be exactly what you're talking about hustle and get the ball and and scoop it up and go for a layup so for coaches out there that are you know starting to question some of this stuff i think one helpful tool or thought is go to what the assumption is and then that's what you want to celebrate right so the assumption there is that's showing hustle well hustle's good right we want to celebrate that but it's diving on the loose uh, diving on the floor for a loose ball the most effective demonstration of hustle no what you just described is much better so an example um, that I did is we just stopped doing taking the charge drills because the injury risk was just too high and somebody's gonna break their their wrist or something taking the charge even though I love taking a charge because it gets you possession guaranteed possession of the ball and it gets the other team in foul trouble but um, it just doesn't seem worth it in terms of the injury risk. So maybe that's something I did that was a little bit different. For sure. And even still, you could like want your players to take charges, but you don't need to actually do a charge drill. You, you might exactly. want them to dive on certain times, but you don't need to waste your time doing the, the, the diving drills. That Shaka Smart drill 
is preposterous to me. What you know, they have him, um, you know, that drill they throw the ball out, he's got to like mm-hmm. save it on the sideline, then he's got to dive for it and slide across the thing, and then he's got to whatever it was. It's like this fake, it's all fake hustle all the way through. Um, and and yeah, even the diving stuff with the injury stuff is 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 there, and it certainly is well, a thing. Is it, is it, coach, is it fake hustle or is it real hustle deployed? Badly, like misplaced, misplaced hustle. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. misplaced energy. Like I, I shared a, a thing on uh, Twitter the other night with Marcus Smart, who you know I, I tend to point out he, he drives me nuts when I watch him play. But uh, he's out there, he's trying to play defense in the backcourt, and then ends up just gambling, is like up in the air, falls across step, and like ends up fouling him. Oh no, ends up landing on the ground so badly that like it's a five on four, and they get a wide open three pointer. So right. here's a guy who like thinks he's you know giving out energy and this is great, but he pulled himself so far out of position and he was so out of control in doing it that you just give up the you know the opposite of what he thinks he's doing. Um, that that is my my always been my concern and the reason why is because like I I played that way. I was that kid who had smoke coming out of his ears and thought I had to play uh, you know 200 percent harder than everybody else. And really what I was doing was I wasn't being taught individual skills enough. So I thought I needed to overcome that by like hustle versus why not just spend more time and have more efficient time getting better on skills, you know, and that's right. why I coach, I think is because I, I got pretty good. Uh, I could have played like D3, but um, I never had a, a, a guy. I had a, everything I learned was just like through through almost like luck because the way that was it, things were taught were so bad, and we and like the way I teach it now is so opposite to that that um, it's like I, I'm just I'm desperate to give somebody else who who, who was in my position, you know, as a ten year old, the actual sentences that would help. I think that that makes sense. Yes, yeah, and, and that's what's so great. Like to your point about the series you did with the guys from England. And I just interviewed for my podcast a coach, the head coach at Denison University, a guy named Chris Sullivan. And he was talking about that they send five guys to the offensive glass, which blew my mind. And he walks through kind of how that actually doesn't translate into more fast breaks for the other team because you're forcing them to box out. But he said he got that from watching a YouTube clip from a coach in Australia. So the beautiful thing about today is things are iterating so much faster than when you and I grew up. You know, what you're describing, it's sort of like Plato's cave or the Matrix, right? Like every now and again, you get a glimpse of, hey, there's <laughs> yeah. something there, right? And then, then you get a glimpse of something else and eventually you start putting them together. But now that process is happening so much faster. And actually, uh, the coach at Denison, Chris Sullivan, his father directs a program a master's program in education focused on positive coaching at the University of Missouri. And so there are these things that are popping up, the Positive Coaching Alliance, a guy named Greg Graber, who's great out of Memphis, who does co- uh, works with a bunch of different college programs, of understanding how things like mindfulness, like meditation, and positive coaching, all these things are incredibly powerful tools, both for performance, right, that the more I embrace these, the more I won, but much more importantly for what's important in life, right? And, and you kind of alluded to this, like the language we use around sports, suicides, the Raiders, going to battle. Like sports should be about play. And I grew up as an incredibly competitive person, an incredibly incre- competitive young man. And it's not the healthiest way to be. And again, the, you know, this is the whole theme of the book. The less I focused on that, the more I won. Right. I mean, that's the point because we talk about like toughness, right? That we're running suicides so they can be tougher. T- 
to me, what toughness is, is knowing that you're more skilled than the other team and you're going to execute better than the other team. That's always been tough. You know, the best players, will be watch them, they're never on the floor, right? They don't, they're never on the floor like diving. And part of the reason why you'd see diving is because you're deficient in skills and then you need to overcome that somehow. I mean, I have now uh, one hip replacement, another on the way, I, and my hip replacement was at 37. Uh, this finger will never straighten. I mean, just the, just the kind of what we were modeled, like the Larry Bird style, if you can walk, then you need to be able to play. Um, we have to look at a bigger picture here, which is, A, you know, you want to have a positive experience. And by the way, again, it's not, it's not easy. If, you, if you're a high, high school varsity basketball coach and you have 12 guys in the team and your 12th guy doesn't play, like he might hate you for the rest of his life. Right, that that could right. happen, um, right. there. But there are ways to engage everybody in a way that it does feel like um, you know they are part of the team and they're not alienated and they don't hate you for the rest of their life. But like in, that's the bigger picture here versus you know what you described as far as using war um, you know analogies and metaphors um, to ultimately not play your best. I mean, I think that's the thing. There, you're not going to play your best anyway. You're going to play some right. version of something that can get you know you can get eighty or five percent of what you can do. But um, we all know that feeling, even if it's, if it's pickup or whatever, uh, of having that rhythm in, in maybe your favorite song in your head playing to the point where I, if I were going to run another team again, I would probably have people always like to play music. Oh, we're really forward thinking. We play music while we're warming up. Aren't we cool? Aren't we whatever? I would probably play music during the actual scrimmages. Loud mm, mm-hmm. to tap into mm-hmm. that because, like you mm-hmm. said, like during your games, you know, and we all, we have a model of that in um, uh, what's in Iowa. What's the team that runs the they, they sub five out in a time and they they score 150 oh, points? Oh, the platoon. Grinnell. Yeah, oh, they, they yeah, platoon, yeah. and he and the yeah. coach sits at the other end of the bench and just doesn't do anything because everything has been it. predetermined. So, um, you know, there would be there would be no need necessarily to like be talking too much during scrimmages unless you want to micromanage everything that happens in a, in a scrimmage. But anyway, the point being that tapping into that rhythm. I think is what you can unlock even more than they'd ever be able to to achieve versus I think my mindset back in the caveman days was I'm going to teach them how to unlock that by making them run 10 suicides this instead of nine. You know what I mean? Right. And that's that, going to get them to focus. Yeah. Well, that's going to get them to learn. Oh, you could see how much more you could do, you know, like right. that's going to open right. up this other world. And in fact, it's just they're not getting better, right? And so, you know, let's talk about this for a second. Have you been monitoring the Ben Simmons uh, situation? Yeah, actually, I have what you just said. I have two questions for you, and then then let's definitely yeah. talk about that. So, two questions for you: If you went back to coaching, how would you start practice, and what would these like percent breakdown of what you did in practice be? Wow, it's a great question. Because um, at one point, I had an assistant come in with me to coach, and he was like, we have to do these exact same drills, warm-ups, every single day, every single time. It'll be like, um, it, you know, it'll give them a sense of normalcy, every, you know, whatever, and it's tumultuous, whatever. And I was like, okay. And, that we, and we did it, but it was just so boring after the first, like, five days. I'm that guy who wants to be constantly changing things up and giving them different things. So, you know, I would probably have, you know, a couple things to get warmed up that I could rotate through uh, as far as warm-up. And obviously, warm-up is a big thing. And, like, I, you know, a lot of times coaches don't even recognize how important, like, hip flexibility is and, um, and you know, core strength. You know, you can become a much better basketball player simply by working on your hip flexibility and your core strength and your glutes. Yep. You know what I mean? Just Dynamic by, stretching. Without even touching the basketball, you can get better. 
So obviously, you know, those are the things. But then, you know, I, I would definitely spend the first half of the practice. If it's an hour, then let it be an hour of individual instruction. But it would all be small-sided games. And here's the kicker, which I didn't do enough of. So I would do, when I built my triangle offense, uh, and by the way, this is this is not an interview anymore. We'll have a conversation. That's that's what the whole channel is about, right? So forgive me if I'm talking okay. as much as I am. But No, this, this is great. Yeah, but let's get to this. So, uh, so I would do two-line drills, three-line drills, no defense. I wanted them to get bored with the pattern so they would master the triangle offense. But one day, I was like in a hurry. I'm like, okay, we had a three-line drill going. Okay, now just the first three are on defense, then the next three are on offense, and then we rotate. Offense, defense, defense, rotates. And it was the best practice we had ever. And, and, and But I didn't do it again. Like, But I, I'll never forget it. I remember which gym we were in and why. And it, it didn't dawn on me until like a year later. I was like, the reason why is because not only were we working on our patterns in a small-sided game, but it was actually live. And maybe you let them do the first pass to get going, but then it becomes live. And the the uh, improvement level on an individual and team basis just skyrocketed. And I was convinced that for years, my teams would always start out kind of slow. And then they'd get warmed up and then we'd, we'd, we'd catch on. And I kind of feel like it was because I didn't do enough uh, live action drilling of those lines and, and uh, of other drills too. So I, I think that would be my main thing is to find as many opportunities to have live small-sided drills. Uh, I don't care if it's messy. I don't care if the ball gets thrown over and people are flying all over the place. You know, I think that's the other fear is coaches will say, oh, if Bobby Knight walks in right now and they'll see these lines are not perfectly neat and the drill is not run perfectly and he's going to you know, walk out. I don't care. I want it to be messy. That's the chaos where they learn. So I think I'd be a lot less concerned with all that order and I'd be a lot more focused on getting as many reps with live defense as I could. I love it. I love it. So... Where I go with that is I would – if my last year, my final year coaching, I really got into small-sided games. And the same thing that you're talking about, something that we're both talking about, that like you see these glimpses and it's like, okay, next time let's do this. Next time let's do this. And then I, I stopped coaching in 2019, 2018. I, I, I can't remember. No, 2017 was my last year coaching, 2017. So if I go back to coaching, it would be meditation to start with. Just going to sit in a circle, meditate. Um, one thing that I liked a lot is usually I would have the guys just pair off and somebody who wasn't their bestie and, and say, just share something, you know, just sh- two minutes, share something going on in your life. Right. So meditation, share something, stretching, and then maybe five, 10 minutes of just movements without the ball, pivoting, pass faking, shooting form. And then I would do a ton of shooting, like just shots up, shots up, form, shooting, da 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 da. And then if it's two hour practice, at least an hour, the final hour, maybe hour 15, is small sided games. And what I got into was three, it could be three on three, four on four, whatever. It's half court. So everybody on the team can participate the whole time. And it'd be really quick games, maybe to three points or five points. And after the shot goes up, um, if it's it, it make or miss, everybody has to go back to half court. So it's forcing everybody to sprint to half court and then sprint. If you're on offense and you're fast enough, then you get a free layup. So it's forcing everybody to, to, to get back on defense, as it were. And then from there, I added a bunch of little twists. Like if you get fouled and hit the shot, the game's over, right? So now it's really focusing on shot faking and getting fouled. Um, if you shoot a mid-range shot, maybe it's one point, but a layup's two points and a three-pointer's four points or whatever. You can just adjust everything to emphasize. Maybe there's no dribbling. Um, and, and so that's what I would really and, – and another key for that is you can't guard the man who's guarding you, right? So the shot goes up. 
the defensive team gets a rebound. They Everybody on the team now has to get to half court and touch half court before they can be on offense. Everybody on defense has to do the same thing, but defense can't guard the same guy. So now it's forcing communication. But small-sided games, everybody's invested. Everybody's having fun, right, because it's play. Let's emphasize that. It's play, and everybody's learning in the chaos. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, it's obviously, shooting, I, wow, I didn't mention that. I think the one thing I would change with my shooting goes, I would do a very little form shooting at the high school level, at least. Um, mm, tell me why. Because I want some version of defense, of, um, of visual perception of defense uh, when they're shooting. Right. Even if it's just like a little bit, a guy kind of you know nearby, but letting him kind of shoot in it, but then ramping it up from there or varying it. Uh, I feel like I, I had too many people who would, who would email me saying, I can nail every shot in practice and I get in these games and I can't do it. Uh, I think part of it is just because they're shooting without anybody near them and they're just standing and shooting. So I would do as much of that kind of movement into shooting as I could, not just standing around and shooting 10 shots in a row at the same spot. And certainly not with any, and it, there needs to be some visual disruption of um, you know, of your field when, when you're shooting just to, to train your nervous system to handle the disruption. I love that. Um, I, I, mean, I love that. And, and, yeah. and the other thing there is, you know, I hate shooting drills where you get you go get the ball and pass it back to your partner because then that's, that's encoding, okay, after I shoot, I go towards the basket. Whereas at least the way I coach, you know, I want everybody sprinting back on defense, maybe one or two people crashing. So I'd rather set up drills where if we're shooting with a partner, right, you – you shoot five times, your partner rebounds five times, passes to you. And the way that we could add what you're talking about is, okay, I get the rebound, I pass out to, to my partner, and then I close out on him. So he has to shoot. And now what would normally happen is the person shooting would, would go to the basket and pass back. But that encodes, okay, after I shoot, I don't get back on defense. So I would have, you know, maybe maybe you do it three three people, right? So there's one person still getting the rebound, they kick out again to the person, and and close out as they're shooting while the person who kicked out previously goes back under something like that i like that here's my problem with all those kind of drills that deal with passing Mm. to somebody and then closing out you Mm, are on offense and now you're on defense it's weird and it doesn't (laughs) but that's basketball though right like you're always like it switches like that yeah but it it never sat well with me but i by the way i do it i have no i mean you know a little problem no no no. there's something there if something's not sitting well with you there's something there so i'm not saying that this is correct because so so i think this obviously the solution would be and you can add an extra line so now you have a little bit more of a engagement there it is you know, because really, is. when you're you're closing out to someone who's getting a pass from like the top to the wing, right? So that's right. where the pass should be coming from. Again, exactly. you want to you want to re you know you want to sort of uh, you know have the visual stimulus be the same. And so tracking the ball right to left and then going to the left wing or to the right wing, you know, to close out is it would probably be a little bit better. And then again, you have then you can have that passing line do something, or at least they're inv- more involved. Because again, you're right, it's death to have you, you want these nice clean lines, but you're asking kids or high schoolers or whoever college players to like stand still in the middle of a, of a sporting you know practice. It's, it's like it's, it's torture. Stupid. So and I'll know, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll I'll share with you and the listeners the best drill I got from from Bob Knight who was a master at efficient practice, right? I mean, there's a reason he won so many games. Now, he was, just in my experience, sitting in the stands with a bunch of coaches, high school coaches, watching him run practice, and he was mic'd up. He was a total asshole to everybody around him, the grad students, the assistants, the women's coach who popped in. I mean, he just had that need to dominate. But he was genius at organizing practice. And the best drill I got from him, it's called the change drill. So it's five on five, full court, 
and you know go back and forth and then he would yell change and whoever had the ball has to drop the ball and and now that the offense is now on defense and the person who's guarding the ball handler picks up the ball immediately goes into fast break and you can't guard the person who was guarding you so it fo- it forces you to communicate i got so and so i got so and so and it forces that that you know, being comfortable in that chaos of, oh shit, there's a turnover, bang, we're immediately going from offense to defense and, and vice versa. Yeah, I, I have a drill for you too, I want to mention, because another one of those things where I had learned it, I think um, I was a manager at Wisconsin under Stu Jackson, and they were running it. And um, at, at some point I did it. And here's, here's how, let's give you the mindset, you know this, but if you're listening, you might not know the mindset of like the caveman coach. And I, I kind of point to like 1994 as this ground zero where it all like sort of solidified at that moment. Most people who were born after that seemed to get it and were kind of easier to deal with. But people like, I, I'm probably older than you, but uh, you know, people my age or older, it's like, it's caveman. So, uh, it was a, it, the drill uh, was so good and it was so fun to play that like my player the players were always like hey w- can we run that drill again can we run the drill and I'm like well no it's not in our practice schedule and that's a whatever and I was like thinking about it after that thinking what am I crazy why would I not run a drill that the players are desperate to run because they love it like that's exactly what you've been looking for and the drill is uh, d- you know d- I'm, gonna, I'm really stretching this out here to make it uh, suspenseful. Uh, it's four on four on four, which is great because now you have 12 players all at once involved. And it starts out as four on two. And as soon as the ball crosses half court, the other two guys on defense run into the mid circle and then have to get in and then try and stop you know, the, four, the four on two fast break. Meanwhile, the third team has two guys back you know, stacked on the free throw line under the basket with their other two defenders waiting at the half court out of bounds. So that when the rebound comes and the defense gets it, they start coming across. And then, again, the two guys come into the middle, touch with their feet, and then get into the play. So it's four on, four on two into four on four, and then back and forth. But here's the genius of it is, you know, you get a point for a score. You get a point for a stop. You get negative one for a turnover. And you get, you know, plus one for a, you know, a steal. Uh, but then the real – what I had fun with was I'm like, okay, if you guys run pinch post, I'll give you a point even if you don't score off of it. So next thing you know, you know, these guys are getting free points by running the offense that I've been trying to get in the run anyway, and they're doing it on their own volition. Uh, that was some of my favorite time, and it's live, and it's fast, and it's competitive. And then here's the other problem, though, is the losing two teams generally would do something that the other team doesn't, obviously doesn't want to do, and you think, okay, that has to be a suicide or two or something, and I don't want to do a suicide. I, I, my, here's, maybe you can help me solve this. The ideal would be that they do some sort of punishment that the winning team looks at and goes, God damn, I, I don't want to do that too. You know, like they're getting better and I'm not, you know. And I don't know what that is. Maybe you can help me. But that's the only problem because you obviously want to have stakes so that they want to, you know, win. Right. Although just winning is usually enough for them, the competitive juices. But right. I don't know if you have any thoughts, but that's that's my favorite drill and the one that I would probably do for like a half an hour at a time in a, in a practice. I love it. So it's four on two to four on four to four on two to four on four just infinitely. Yeah. You just need to have love pennies it. so you can have the third team yeah. color or whatever. Yeah. And I love it because it's, it's four – again, it's, um, it's emphasizing – when you have the advantage, press the advantage. It's emphasizing communication, and it's just fun. So that's a great question, right? Because I'm sure coaches are out there are thinking, okay, if I can't have my guys run suicides or do push-ups, what should they do? So just off the top of my head, you know, have them do two-ball dribbling, you know, up and down the sideline two times, right? Um, or even better, have them do it, and they they have to sit out while they're doing it. Obviously, they can't be in the drill. They can't be in the four-on-four-on-four because now you're emphasizing how much fun it is to do these drills. And if you're doing it, if you have to do two ball dribbling up and down the sideline two times, you're still working on skills. 
and you're still in, invested in, and you're not being punished, punished, but you're doing something that the other guys don't have to do. Yeah. You just didn't have 16 balls. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which well, is getting, getting, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard was one ball. Like you should have at least the number of balls as you have players. And I actually think you should have probably have two for every player because you yeah. always want guys to have a ball in their hand and dribbling, and I'm a big fan of two-ball dribbling, even three-ball dribbling. I'm sure everybody out there knows Don Meyer and, and all of his stuff. Um, so love it. Uh, I, by the way, the two-ball dribbling could also be doing be done while you're doing lunges across the court because now you're opening up your hips. And, you, and, and that's hard, but you're doing yep. something that's worthwhile, but you also need to be dribbling. I, do you call it chunking? I, I remember I've, I've heard that phrase to, to yeah. bundle you know multiple skills together but uh maybe that maybe that's the solution two ball dribbling up and down the maybe half court and back but you have to do a lunges while you're doing it balance um you know flexibility all that stuff so, and, and but it's, and it's, that would be hard you'd be sweating a little bit after that even even half court half court and back yeah. um yeah that might and, be and, it and so 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 for the coaches out there i think one one another thought is think of what it is like I love that idea of you get a point if it goes to the post or pinch post. Think of what it is you want the team to do and then think about how you're emphasizing that in practice and how you're rewarding that in practice. And again, that's why I love small-sided games because you can adjust the scoring however you want. If if the if there's five passes, get a point. If the five passes with no dribble, you get two points. If it goes to the pinch post, you get a point. You know, just by by creating the competition and then, you know, creating the scoring system, you're going to reinforce what it is you want the team to do on the court. Absolutely. And then there's actually a drill that I watched um, the Warriors run all the time, which incorporates every rotation you'd, act, you'd ever need in the defense. And it's, it's, it's continuous. So there's a line on top. So there is a line. But once you get going, you go through, you know, four or five positions and then you're right back. You know, it's, it's, it's you're going through loop, going through every position, every rotation. Um, I even did an interview with Ron Adams, which I guess I'll tell. Like, I, they're supposed to send me some footage. I've been waiting for like a year to get the footage from practice so I could actually like do a video on it because I, I don't mm-hmm. even have it in my brain. I could see it, but it's like I need the diagrams. Nonetheless, it's like anything like that where you can have, you know, 10 people, 12 people doing something at the same time. That's why I even love doing just even, um, you know, my shell drill, which I would have, let's see, two... Uh, I could have up to you know six people on the perimeter and then six defenders. You know that, that's twelve people. With, you know we won't have that many people left in line to like go through that. Uh, there's no question that it, it always made me my, my my skin would crawl. Is that the right whatever that my 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 hair would stand up whatever it is when I would see too many people standing. And even back in the day, right. like well this is the it. drill. I don't know what else to do. This is what we have to do. But it always sat you know problematic with me. Yep. Even like dipping on the catch. You know, I was growing up saying, well, if you want to play D1 and be a D1 shooter, you can't dip the ball when you catch it. And I would see, like, Larry Bird dip it. And I'm like, well, I guess it's because he's 6'9", six, six, he's allowed to dip. You know, all those mm-hmm. things that never sat well with me on the, from the teaching standpoint. Um, you know, finally, when you have a chance, you can actually experiment and realize that, you know, your instincts are probably right. And then especially when we have, you know, HD footage and frame by frame, we can finally see what these people are really doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like, again, it would be fun to see the history of the suicide. Who decided to invent that thing? It's also mm-hmm. interesting to see, like, well, who invented? you know shooting why did they feel like that was the way to shoot and why did they feel like this became dogma for so long and you know I mean part of the answer is the, all the shit we learned that's not right is because of two-handed set shots that 
that had started, mm. the, you know, when we started. And then when they went to a one-hander in the late 30s, early 40s, no one thought to, like, update <laughs> update the method, right? It's that's crazy. That's such a great question, Coach. I've never th- – but, again, if we go back to question and assumptions, that's a huge one. Why do we shoot like this? And is it the most efficient, effective way to shoot? I've never thought about that. But that that's the type of thing we're talking about, right? Yeah. Question everything. And if something's bothering you a little bit, there's a – you know, investigate that. And, and then – once you figure out what it is that's bothering you, what it is you want, backwards plan to emphasize that in practice. Speaking of shooting, you wanted to say something about Ben Simmons. Oh well, the Ben Simmons thing, as you know, uh, we can we can start. This will be the we can wrap this up as we start. It's, sure. it's, again, this is a dangerous conversation that could go on for like more. I know, more for hours, six so, hours. Yeah, so we'll have to like hang out at some point in real life and do this um, uh, without the. I, I don't know about you, but like my wife, whenever I run into somebody like at a party like that, it's like she she starts yanking on me like, let's go, let's go. She you know couldn't. Anyway, the point being that uh, Ben Simmons. So, you know, everyone you talk to, inside, outside, whatever, will tell you that he doesn't work very hard. And he's kind of angry and he's surly and he's aloof and all these different things. And, you know, and I might have even gotten that impression, you know, talking to him once or twice, like at a shoot around, whatever. But here's my take, is that he's getting terrible shooting instruction. Of course, he's missing, you know, and this is years of terrible shooting instruction and years of breaking, breaking, breaking. So I don't blame him for becoming so fed up and frustrated and like that that would make him angry. Like here's a game he's so good at, but here's one part of it that he's not doing well at. He can't seem to get any better after all these reps and after all these things. So it's like, what's the point at this point? I I just kind of give up and I don't think it's, you know, this is not fun. This is not helping. Um, And as a result, he's now getting painted as that kind of player in a very negative light when I think it could very well just be that he just hasn't gotten the right coach. Oh, yeah. Ben Simmons does everything on the floor that helps you win basketball games, right? He scores, he rebounds, he passes. He is a phenomenal defender who can switch one to five and can run the team. So he's, he's quite similar to Draymond Green, probably a more athletic, taller Draymond Green, who is an incredible winner. And we preach, and this is important on the court and in life, to know your blind spots to know what it is you don't excel at and to um, accommodate that. Ben Simmons knows he's not a great shooter and he knows he's not a great three-point shooter. Therefore, he doesn't take three-point shots. That's smart. That's basketball intelligence. I know I don't do this thing well. Let me minimize the number of times I don't do this thing. And instead, the response is, well, you should shoot some fucking threes. Um, well, he, he, he's aware that he doesn't do that well. So he's not doing it. That's a smart basketball player. Now we can get into maybe he should be shooting with his other hand. He's naturally there's something about maybe he's naturally a left hand, but he does everything right hand or opposite. But whatever it is, he has recognized that he doesn't do this thing well. Therefore, he's minimizing the times he does it which helps his team win games in addition to everything else he does on the court. Well, that is true in the regular season. But when you mm-hmm. get into the playoffs and they have time to, to actually scheme and then he goes and hides because he doesn't want the ball because they're going to follow him up on the free throw line, that mm-hmm. is a problem. And and mm-hmm. this and this penchant for him to just go by hang up on the dunker spot, which, by the way, I just want to throw this out there since we're talking. That's the slot. Why the slot became out by the, you know, the elbow extended, that, that's like a bastardization of a term that was supposed to be the dunker spot. Is a, I don't even like that term. I don't know what that, you know. It's the slot. It's down by the baseline where he likes to go hang out and then hide. 
Uh, and he'll do that even, you know, not even in the fourth quarters a lot of the time, too. That is really the issue, I feel like. Because uh, you're right, everything you described, he does really well. But we get to these playoff games, and he seems, and it's a mental thing. He gets scared, doesn't really want to be engaged. And so now they're playing like four on five. Um, and then there are times, if he is on the perimeter, where they just sink off of him so low that he gets in the way of everybody else, or his man can. That you know, that, and that, that's only an, that's a that's a first world problem, right? That's a second round of the playoffs right. problem, right? Right. But and, you know, if they want to win a title, if, if he's generating positive play after positive play, let's say for the first thirty six minutes or the first thirty eight minutes, he's still helping your team win, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the way I think about it is like putting your scale your your thumb on the scale. LeBron James and Chris Paul are right now the ultimate thumb on the scale players. They just maximize every possession. Um, even to the with Chris Paul, even to the extent of with the referees. Um, so uh, Ben Simmons does that. Um, sh- you, you wouldn't throw the ball to Shaq in the final two minutes for the same reason. Doesn't mean you know he's not a <laughs> phenomenal player. That's a, wow, that's a great point. And that, by the way, that's the thing with Shaq is he never had a last second play called for him. Like this is right. supposed to be the MVP of the league and all these things. And it was like you know. And by the way, that's what Doc was trying to say, and he ineloquently. In, in said it at the end of the playoffs last year, which uh, ultimately cost him a player, like who's never going to play, I think probably because of what yeah. he said. But but the, yeah. what was lost was that he said, you know, he just needs to fix the free throws. And that's probably right because if – here's the – I guess the, the key would be is if he shot free throws better, then he would be more engaged in the offense coming around handoffs, driving, and kicking, that if they do follow him and he goes to the line, that he can still be a benefit to the team. Um, and by the way – 50% from the free throw line is one point per possession. Now, it's a little bit harder to argue that, like, you know, when you need you need the two points and you're down by three or whatever in the, in the last four mm-hmm. minutes. But, um, you know, there is there is some leeway to that as well as far as how bad of a free, free throw shooter do you, are you before you are really bad, you know. Is right. 60% really that bad when you're going to make, you know, what is that per possession? It's certainly more than 1.0, which is good. So anyway, um, so that that is, I think, so Doc probably was was more right than not as far as you know focusing on like if, if he could fix the free throw issue, uh, that would go a long way. And um, you know, and then we have a whole other thing we talk about free throws and rhythm and shooting because again, we teach shooting free throws completely different than shooting jump shots, and that makes no sense to me either. A, mm-hmm. a completely different rhythm, a completely different kind of uh, emotion. Why do we have to master two different skill sets for what should arguably be the same? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's the other thing, it, you know, uh, and, and some players have been able to do it and, are, and have been great at it, but, uh, you know, you watch Steph Curry, he, he mimics the rhythm, he shoots on a jump shot in his free throw, and that seemed, and so did Steve Kerr and a lot of those guys. So, anyway, well, listen, this was awesome. I, I'm not even sure we got enough into the book, but you guys got to have to buy the book. Uh, the link I'll put it in the description below in the uh, in the um, uh, podcast description. But but again, the, the name of the book is Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball. The writer is Ben Guest, who was my guest in the show today. So Ben, we'll, we'll have to come back on and do this again, and maybe get on the court one day and actually do some stuff in, on video. I would love to. I'd, I'd love to get on the court and you know get a high school team in there and and you know just run a bunch of drills and and do all that stuff. Would love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on again. The book is Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, and it's available on Amazon ebook, paperback, hardcover. Hardcover edition is great. And uh, on Twitter, I'm B Guest G U E S T. So Ben Guest on Twitter, B Guest. And then I have a, a Substack where I have a, a weekly podcast interviewing creatives, writers, coaches, sports folks, and that's benbo.substack.com. B-E-N-B-O. That's my my family nickname. Benbo.substack.com. Aha. Uh-huh. But can Coach, we find it on, so on the podcast app as well? 
on yes, the Apple yep. Podcast? What, what's yep. it, what's it's, it called it's there? It's called um, Conversations About Creativity. Conversations About Creativity. And at the top, I mentioned self-publishing and writing. So I have a bunch of stuff, a bunch of interviews about um, how to maximize self-publishing. So, so Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball actually became the number one book in the category of coaching basketball and for a day it was the number one book in the overall basketball category ahead of scotty pippen and mamba mentality and so forth so i I have a couple of great interviews sorry i'm in new york so there's some hammering upstairs uh (laughs) have some great interviews about the um, process of self-publishing and how to maximize your sales uh love it well we'll check all that stuff out uh for the love of god please stop the hammering uh, to reference uh, Scrooge. And again, thank you so much for being on the show. And don't forget, sports fans, at Beatball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Ben? Definitely. Count me in. <laughs>